The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. Uh, Senator Lee, good to have you back. Good to be with you. So um, two years ago, I don't imagine either one of us would have imagined that we would be doing a show on the baby formula shortage in the United States. And it, you know, what what strikes me as that all of this stuff that we've done over the last two years to disrupt the supply chain and determine who's who's important to work and who's not allowed to work is we've exposed some structural problems with with our food supply. Indeed and, we have. And Thomas Massey has talked about this in terms of the, the production and processing of, of beef and pork. But now we've discovered that we have an incredibly brittle system for supplying baby formula to moms and, and babies in the United States. Um, why is that? The interesting thing here is, Matt, the, this is not the result of a natural shortage. The, the, these items aren't particularly scarce. Government has created the scarcity. It's done so through a series of regulatory restrictions and import restrictions that have made it very, very difficult. We've then compounded the problem further by the way the WIC program operates. Uh, you know, you've got parents who receive a, a WIC voucher, and very often it will specify a brand or a product within a brand, a formula they have to buy, and no other. And so all these things compound into one, and they create this natural federal government-induced shortage. Look, they're not out of formula in Mexico. They're not out of formula pretty much anywhere else in the Americas or in Europe. We're out of it here yeah. because of the federal government. Yeah. It's, um, you know, one of the one of the things I learned, like I, I didn't know anything about um, the distribution of baby formula until I read your bill. Um, but one of the things I learned is that ab about half of the total uh, consumption of, of baby formula is paid for through the, the government program, WIC. That's right. That's right. And so when we pay for this many things through the federal government and you constrain the way people can buy it through that government program, but then you add on to it all these import restrictions and you say, look, even though there are formulas made in Europe, for example, that are just fine. In fact, some claim that they're, they're far superior to what we have here in the United States. And even though uh, many of those countries that produce those formulas have FDA systems, regulatory systems that are as stringent uh, as ours, if not more so. We still can't import them here because they don't meet the right regulatory uh, uh, requirements with regard to labeling. And because we slap a hefty tariff on them, making it economically not feasible most of the time in order to do it. It's ridiculous. Did this all start as as sort of uh, you know American protectionism yeah. for for uh, milk producers? Is that yeah. where we're well, started? Well, it's protectionism uh, across the board. We, we we've got a series of protectionist policies in place, from everything from uh, baby formula to lumber and everything in between, and we, we really need to knock it off. These aren't good things. All they do is tend to enrich government. They tend to enrich a small handful of market incumbents, but they make the American people poorer. And they also do violence to uh, the free markets. And it's free markets that bring down prices and increase quality. So the sort of exposure of all of this brittleness, I guess, started with the Abbott Labs voluntarily recalled their product because of potential concerns um, but that was like three months ago. Yes. Why are we, why is the Biden administration just 
caring about this now? Like, it, it seems sort of like an obvious crisis seeing that. Well, I think it wasn't yet apparent to the rest of the world, to the rest of the country, that it was a crisis yet. Uh, once it became noticed by the public and people started experiencing these shortages, people started having to wonder how on earth they were going to feed their baby, then, yeah, it became a concern. But you're right. The Biden administration should have foreseen what was coming months ago when they made this decision. And and when you, you saw this lab, uh, the, this facility in Michigan being shut down. Yeah. The uh, one one of the one of the culprits here um, that is now sort of being um, rewarded with new new funding is the Food and Drug Administration um, has um, has in my mind exceeded anything about about safety and just gotten into a very bureaucratic requirements for labeling, which is one of the rationales for not allowing uh, European products in. Um, is it? Are they are they doing good stuff or are they just in the way of fixing the problem? Yes. I think the answer to both questions is always yes. Yes, they're doing some good things in that, you know, we, we, um, we, we don't have dangerous product being issued and that's great. But when they go so overboard, and it's understandable how they get here. I mean, in the mindset of the regulator, the regulator is the bulwark against uh, corporate tyranny, uh, the the bulwark against people being harmed. Mm -hmm. And so they see everything they do is so important that they want to dial it up to an 11 every time. The problem with that is when they ignore realities on the ground, uh, sometimes they can create problems that are very, very significant without ever realizing it or caring. You know, I, I don't know anything about this industry except what, what I've learned from reading your stuff the last week or so. But it strikes me that this highly regulated environment, um, there's a little bit of regulatory capture going on. Absolutely. The, the producers of, of baby formula are big multinational companies. Um, I assume they like the regulatory structure because it prevents other people from getting in the market. Of course. Of course. It, you know, our federal regulatory system imposes an estimated $2 trillion in compliance costs on the economy every year. That's paid for by you and me, by poor middle-class Americans everywhere who pay for it with higher prices on goods and services, diminished wages, unemployment, and underemployment. Um, and, you know, we, we don't want a, a, a free-for-all in which people can get away with harming uh, members of the public. But that doesn't mean we need this type of regulatory system in place that's this aggressive, that's this costly. But what it does help, the one group of people that clearly win from this are market incumbents who benefit from the, the, the high restrictions on entry that are naturally placed in uh, an economy like this one uh, by these enormous regulatory burdens. It makes it very, very difficult for would-be competitors to break into the market. Yeah. And that's, and so you, to, to all of these points, um, you have introduced legislation to at least provide temporary relief for all of these barriers that, that would allow the market to fix this problem. What's the name of this bill? It's called the Formula Act. Uh, it's, it's a clever name. Uh, it's a, it's a name that actually forms an acronym. Uh, don't ask me to reproduce the elements of the acronym here, but... I, I got it. I got I, it. Hold I've on. taken pride recently in coming up with uh, bill names uh, that uh, are acronyms and that are actually pronounceable. This after years ago, I saw myself producing a series of bills, including the Family Fairness Opportunity Tax Reform Act, or FAFATRA. Sounds like <laughs> a fake swear word. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, uh, my staff and I have taken pride in figuring out 
good acronyms. Now, do you guys sit around and 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 maybe get a bowl of Jello and and sort of work these things Absolutely. out? Absolutely, all, all great things are worked out with a bowl of Jello. Yeah, um, see, I that's that's the limits of my understanding of of your cultural norms right there. <laughs> um, Sometimes a diet coke if we're feeling crazy. Okay, I'm going to find this before we before we go too far. But um, what 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 does it do? All right, so it undertakes three basic efforts. Uh, it temporarily lifts uh, these import restrictions, including import tariffs and import quotas on imported formula product. It also uh, temporarily lifts some of the regulatory burdens associated with being able to sell formula manufactured and packaged overseas, as long as it's from a country that has regulatory standards that match or exceed ours and from countries from which we currently allow importation of pharmaceutical product uh, based on that same reasoning. Finally, it lifts some of these artificial constraints within the WIC program, allowing for a family, a, a, a parent who has a WIC voucher, can use that voucher to buy other formula if the product listed on the WIC voucher in question isn't available. You know, that last part is, is pretty outrageous. So, like, um, we, you know, we provide these benefits to people, but it's very dictated in a, in a very micro way, and it, and, yes. it, and it feeds this sort of cronyism. But why wouldn't moms get to make different choices um, based on, and, on various products with nutritional value and, and different preferences they might have? Why, why would we dictate that? Why did we ever do that? Who the heck knows? I mean, I, I think it's crazy. I, I, I don't think it's a good idea for the government to be doing this. I mean, especially in an environment in which everything is so heavily regulated anyway, it's not like uh, among the brands that you can choose from in the United States that you're going to choose one that the government doesn't smile upon or approve because it has reviewed all of them. Now, I I, I don't like having such a heavily regulated marketplace. I, I, I wish there were much more of a role uh, for the economy to play there on its own. Within that system, if you're going to have a government subsidy, it ought not micromanage the decision of which brand and which product within which brand to use. Yeah, there, there's so much, uh, this is a rabbit hole we probably won't go down, but there's so much cronyism in the government recommendations for, for, for diet as well, very much dictated by the interests that, that control the Department of Agriculture and all that stuff. Right. And, a lot of say has been said about the four food groups that you and I were ta yeah. taught about when we were kids and then the food pyramid and, and how they come up with this stuff. And it was all backwards. Um, shockingly, the government right. got it backwards. And we're all obese as a result. Yes. At least that's what I like to blame it on. I, I, I totally blame the government for my, for my fat belly. Um, so here's the name. Um, this is the best name ever. Fixing Our Regulatory Mayhem Upsetting Little Americans. Um, that's just genius. It is. It is, it is absolutely brilliant. Yes. Um, uh, I think it was Joel Wellam on my staff who came up with that particular naming framework, and yeah, he, he deserves to be employee of the month for that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are our prospects? Is This is so reasonable, I assume it has zero chance in the U.S. Senate. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so I, I brought it to the Senate floor just uh, uh, the other day, and I offered it up in what's called a unanimous consent request. I, I tried to pass it unanimously because this is not the kind of thing that anyone in the Senate ought to object to because the, this is providing urgently needed relief. Uh, senator Patty Murray, a Democratic senator from the state of Washington, came to the floor and objected to it. Uh, I, I still don't quite understand 
her opposition to it, but I, I'm going to keep going with this. I'm yeah. going to return to the floor and try to get it passed again because I, I really don't think they can maintain uh, any kind of conscientious objection to this bill. This would provide relief. Now, this doesn't fix all the underlying problems permanently, but it does fix them, at least temporarily. Now, I assume you made a strategic decision to make these um, this all of these provisions temporary yeah. to make it more palatable to the Patty Murray's. Well, well, yeah, to make it more palatable and to address the fact that this is a crisis. We're in the middle of a crisis. Yeah. we got to do it now. Yeah. And while I would love to make much more permanent changes, I made them temporary so as to get rid of the basis for uh, objections if it were longer reaching. So um, the Biden administration, um, their response in my mind has been shockingly inept and and the um, the president has invoked the defense production act um, which presumably was meant for national defense emergencies um, but it, it this is like this this blank check that by the way president trump invoked it first um, during the pandemic uh, and the biden administration has, has used it when whenever it saw fit but it, it basically commandeers the means of production and and I'm an economist, and I know what that means. Um, do we really think that that more government control over the production of baby formula is in any way a solution? No, no, it's it's not. In fact, it's compounding the problem. You're taking one set of market restrictions, one set of interferences by the federal government into the marketplace. You're compounding it several fold by the time you invoke the Defense Production Act and uh, you go through all those steps. It reminds me a little bit of what happened when Harry Truman stepped in and tried to commandeer all steel mills in the United States in 1952. It, it was a, a, a sweeping, breathtakingly hostile uh, approach toward free market economics. It also turned out uh, uh, to complete, be completely unlawful, and the Supreme Court, within about two months, shut him down in that effort. But look, first of all, if everything is a national security matter, Nothing is. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when you allow one person to take such sweeping action in the guise of national security or otherwise, our entire system of checks and balances in the Constitution is thwarted. What's your, what's your sort of general constitutional view on the Defense Production Act? Is this, is this legitimate law? Well, it was put in place for some legitimate reasons. And if it were exercised only uh, in circumstances in which it was genuinely intended, we'd probably be okay. But that's what makes it not a great law. The fact that it's open to this much open-ended abuse suggests that we ought to have another look at it. What we found, I, I undertook a project a few years ago, we called it the Article One Project. It was a bicameral effort in which we did a, uh, a broad assessment of federal power, a power that Congress has delegated out to the executive branch. And what we found was that in almost every area, Congress has delegated its lawmaking power. And this is yet another example of that. It's a big problem because Article One, Section 1 makes clear that all legislative power, all lawmaking power is vested in Congress. Article One, Section 7 makes clear what that means. You cannot pass a federal law without passage of the same bill by the House and by the Senate, followed by presentment of the president for signature veto or acquiescence. Without following that formula, you have not made federal law. We've created a short circuit around this by just delegating everything to the executive branch, and it completely throws off our entire system and with it, liberty. 
And by the way, I need to make a shameless plug for your master class in, in Article One, uh, the Constitution line by line with Mike Lee, which is a co-produced series with Free the People and the Federalist Society. Um, it is the place to go to understand in more depth what you're talking about here. It is indeed. And uh, uh, it, it's a fantastic piece. I wish it were featured on that uh, master class platform, but right now it's featured at uh, this uh, this specific site set up for the Constitution line by line. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to get more into um, uh, the Supreme Court, but before we do that, I have to comment on what, what I think is, is a ridiculous use of presidential power. The president has decided to use U.S. military planes to um, go to Europe, pick up formula, and airdrop it in the United States. And I happen to notice, and I'm sure this is just a coincidence, but he started in Indiana. The first um, drop of supplies um, by military plane was in Indiana, and he's going to Pennsylvania next. Would those in any way have anything to do with the midterms, or am I being cynical? Yeah, go figure. Uh, I, I'm sure that's entirely coincidental. It's, I, uh, entirely. Yeah, there, there's got to be a military explanation for that. After all, this whole thing is a military exercise for a military purpose involving should, baby should, formula. Should we be using the military to deliver baby formula? Probably not, especially when you don't need to use U.S. government assets in order to fly this stuff in. What you need is to open up the free market economy so that people can do what they do best, which is provide things for other people who need it. Even, even with all of the disruptions of the last two years, there is a very sophisticated global system of getting goods to places where they're needed. Right. We, and, and doing so in the least expensive yeah. fashion possible. And that's why, look, it, when you peel all of this back, it makes you wonder how much of the federal administrative state actually does benefit us. I mean, I know the claim is always we make the products that you need more accessible and safer and less harmful. But what if all this disappeared for a, a few days? If it disappeared for a few days, do you really think that in this day and age with information being as readily accessible as it is, that any business selling adulterated or harmful product would last very long? I've got my doubts. Of course not, yeah. And, and, and I wonder uh, about all the harm that could be caused in the absence of aggressive federal regulations yeah. versus the harm that inures as a result of this very strange distortion that you see because of federal regulations. Now, the, and, and to, to that point, the company um, that pulled baby formula off the market did so voluntarily because there were concerns. As an, and as I understand the, the investigation, um, there, there was no link no no discoverable link between um, these these four tragic deaths uh, right. and well, the there product was, itself. I think there was a, a, a link, but the link was to water, to their, the source of water that they were using to mix the baby formula, not produced at this plant, not connected with this baby formula at all. It was the water they were mixing with it. So a, a final constitutional question, I, and I've scratched my head again and again over the last two years wondering where the heck the um, executive branch gets the authority to do some of the things it's doing. Does the president have the constitutional authority to commandeer military jets to deliver food to people? Um, what's, what, 
Okay, so the president does have sweeping authority as commander in chief of the armed forces to order troop movements, to be the commander in chief. Uh, and so if the president decides that something is a military exercise, there's very little that any court is going to be equipped to do to stop that. But all that said, that seems a little too cute to me. Uh, and, and I think the political process itself needs to be the constitutional corrector here. This is one of the problems, one of my grievances with the way we treat the Constitution these days is that we treat constitutionality as synonymous and coextensive with what, if litigated, would result in a particular outcome. Yeah. This is a constitutional question, but it's one that's not likely to be litigated. And that, that's, that's almost a elegant segue to the next conversation I want to have with you, um, your new book that just came out, Saving Nine, the Fight Against the Left's Audacious Plan to Pack the Supreme Court and Destroy American Liberty. Um, this, this subject, um, the seating of the Supreme Court, is also something that we cover, cover in the Article One series. Um, but what is, the, what is the argument for nine members of the Supreme Court? And, and what does the Constitution provide for? As I explained in Saving Nine, the evolution up to nine members of the Supreme Court was gradual. There's nothing magic about the number nine, as I explained in the book. Uh, it is, however, the number that we arrived at a uh, little over 150 years ago. And it's an odd number, which is good because it, it doesn't result in tie votes, except in the rare instance where you've got a justice uh, disqualified or recused or, uh, for whatever reason, not sitting. Um, and it also has proven to be a workable number in terms of um, uh, just workforce, human resources within the court. The point I explain in the book is that having achieved that um, that level of balance, having achieved something that works from a human resources standpoint, there's a, a, enough uh, work power in, in that machine to handle the cases that they need to handle, that we ought not tinker with it. Because if we start tinkering with it, especially as um, politically um, central as the Supreme Court seems to have become lately, there will be an irresistible urge whenever you have a shift in, in power, whenever a different party acquires control of the House of Representatives of the Senate and the White House, to increase further the number of seats on the court to give the incumbent president and his party a chance to remake the court in their own image. And because of the fact that our Supreme Court justices, like all other Article Three judges in the federal system, uh, have life tenure, you can't just whittle it back down afterwards. You can reduce it but you can reduce it only after an additional vacancy has occurred, and that can take years, if not decades, to complete. And so uh, as a result of that, you'd have a one-way ratchet effect in which every time it shifted, you'd have probably four justices added at a minimum, and then it would go the other direction. Before long, the court would stop looking like this focused judicial body and would start to resemble the intergalactic Senate in Star Wars, this enormous body that is enormously uh, political and fickle. No one wants that. So who's Palpatine in this, in this metaphor? I'm pretty sure um, that that's Biden. Yeah. It's yeah. gotta be Biden, yeah. I am, I am the Senate. Yeah. Um, the, you know, we've talked about this many times on this show and, and elsewhere, but your 
I think one of one of the most important insights you've given me is that the 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 move over the last um, generation to centralize more and more power in Washington D.C. heightens the uh, not only the, the tension but the desire to control that power, and we see that in the presidency. But this strikes me as that same dynamic playing out in control of the courts. We didn't get what we wanted. Um, they're stopping us from from doing our sweeping agenda. So let's let's intimidate them, and that's the that's the history of this. It's about intimidation. That's exactly right. That is precisely what it's about. In fact, in Saving Nine, I walked through the historical precedents for this. The the most recent example of this type of manipulation occurred in 1937, uh, when the Supreme Court refused to kowtow to the will and whim of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, the, the court was saying, hey, some of what you're doing is outside the scope of what the federal government can do in general and what the president can do in particular. You can't do this. And he got tired of that. In particular, he was disgruntled by their interpretation of the Commerce Clause, um, which was one of the few things that was st still keeping him from turning what was supposed to be a, a, a limited purpose national government into a general purpose national government. He got tired of this, so he started threatening them, intimidating them, harassing them. He started denigrating the court itself as an institution. And he got so tired of it that he uh, had legislation introduced to pack the Supreme Court, to increase the number of seats so that he could have more influence over it. It failed legislatively, but it failed legislatively only after he had sufficiently intimidated the court to the point that Justice Owen Roberts flipped his vote on some of these core issues involving the interpretation of the Commerce Clause. And on April 12, 1937, they flipped the whole thing. They turned the limited-purpose federal government into a general-purpose national government, and we've been suffering ever since then. So that's what they're trying to do again. They, yeah. they, they, they realize the court won't count out to their will, and they want to control it. And so they're saying, okay, we're going to remake the court until it does our will. It, it sounds eerily familiar, and I'm, I'm sure that the Democrats are not the only party uh, historically that are, have been prone to kind of intimidate the court, but there's been just noticeable statements over the last several years where, where Democratic leaders basically say, if you don't do this, we're coming after you. That's right. Irresponsible that, language. It is very irresponsible language, and a, a lot of it, frankly, stems from irresponsible judging. Uh, and I point to an example of where conservative uh, political activism on the Supreme Court has also arisen, and that itself caused problems. In 1905, in a case called Lochner versus New York, uh, the Supreme Court, with a narrow conservative uh, politically active majority, started striking down state laws. In that case, it was restrictions on the number of hours that bakery employees could work and uh, minimum wage provisions imposed by state law. Nothing in the Constitution said that a state couldn't prescribe uh, labor conditions. N nothing took that off the table for the states, so the states should have been able to do that. The Supreme Court went in and it divided opinion, said this is unconstitutional. It took 32 years to undo that bad precedent. Uh, it, it wasn't undone, um, coincidentally, until 1937. And... Um, uh, finally, when it was undone, people realized that the, it was it was bad reasoning all along. So some of this can happen on both sides of the aisle. But to my knowledge, 
we've never seen a Republican effort to intimidate, threaten, harass, and undermine the Supreme Court or to pack the Supreme Court, not in the way that we're seeing it today, with an attempt to influence the political decision-making of what they wanted to make a political body. Now, um, and, and you point this out as well, um, but the, the shocking thing today perhaps is that very few Democrats openly express skepticism or op- opposition to just adding more Supreme Court seats. Uh, maybe the exceptions are um, Senators Seisma and Manchin, but, but that in, in and of itself, like it's become essentially democratic doctrine that we must pack the Supreme Court. That's right. And it's one of the reasons why I'm grateful for uh, Senator Manchin and Sinema is that they've been willing to stand up to this. But you're right. Most of the rest of the party has either joined the march or they have, through tacit acquiescence, just accepted that it's coming. And I saw this coming uh, over a year ago, which is when I decided to write this book. I I saw the uh, series of pieces that would likely be moving over the uh, next year to year and a half. And I started realizing, oh my gosh, they're going to try to pack the court. Now, throughout our entire lifetime, really since 1937, in fact, it's been the decided judgment of people uh, of every political stripe imaginable that court packing was bad. Joe Biden called it a boneheaded idea when he was still in the Senate. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as recently as two or three years ago, uh, said that it was a, 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 a bad idea. It's been universally condemned in the past by the left. Only recently have you seen a lot of this shifting to the point where they're saying, yeah, it's a good thing. And if you read into it, if you read articles by otherwise respected uh, law professors like Lawrence Tribe and Harvard, like Kermit Roosevelt III at the University of Pennsylvania, if you read their arguments, they're really just saying, yeah, we, we want decisions that will back up our leftist worldview. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time. Uh, you have a new book, and I assume we can get this book wherever good books are sold. Yes. Yes. You can buy Saving Nine on Amazon or basically anywhere um, uh, books are sold. Uh, this book will help inform you uh, of the the history of the Supreme Court and why it matters, but it's much broader than that. It's about much more than the Supreme Court. It'll leave you with a better understanding of how to protect our constitutional system and with an understanding that you'll need in order to push back on, on your friends who may advocate for it. And as I explained in Saving Nine, this is about so much more than the court itself. This is about our system of government. It's about freedom. Yeah, and That's why I wrote Saving Nine. Um, since I have you, I want to ask you sort of a hot button issue that you've, you're always involved in these hot button issues for some reason, you and Senator Rand Paul. Um, there was a recent vote on sending $40 billion to Ukraine. And I, and I looked this up, uh, the entire budget of the government of Ukraine in 2020 was $30 billion. Just to give us some context for how much money we're talking about, I think, I think a lot of Americans, our eyes glaze over, you know, because you guys are spending trillions and trillions of dollars that you don't have. Um, but both you and Rand Paul offered um, what I thought were reasonable amendments, and, and you were completely demonized for it. What, 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 what did you propose, and, and why was it so radical? So what I proposed was uh, striking Title V of the bill, and I'll get to that in a minute, and also paying for 
this, uh, offsetting the spending. We've got a whole lot of spending that's been authorized, that's been appropriated by Congress, but hasn't yet been spent. Uh, some of these COVID relief funds and things like that. So I wanted to offset the spending so that we're not going out and borrowing even more money that we don't have and inflating the dollar even more than we already have. This is not an unreasonable ask, nor is it unreasonable to suggest that if we're going to give aid to Ukraine, that it ought to, in addition to being paid for, it ought to actually be what it claims to be. And yet there was an enormous sum of money uh, uh, that was in this that has nothing to do with Ukraine, or at least was only at best tangentially connected in the bill to Ukraine. We're talking, I don't know, uh, 12, 13 billion dollars for the State Department that could be spent on a wide variety of issues, uh, three or four billion dollars to go to uh, USAID. Uh, and, and all of these things are being thrown in there in a package that's supposed to be for Ukraine. Um, all of this, by the way, should also be accompanied by a discussion about war and about the fact that at some point we do need to have a, a conversation about uh, the, the, the war power whenever we take steps short of declaring war on someone. If we're taking steps that could lead to war, we ought to have that conversation about at what point does Congress's war power kick in. Yeah, it strikes me, and this is in addition to, I think, $14 billion that was already um, appropriated as, as essentially military support for Ukraine. Um, at, at what point does spending $54 billion become an act of war on America's part? Especially with regard to an adversary that has 6,500 nuclear warheads and an adversary whose entire defense outlays average around $65 billion uh, U.S. dollars a year. That's what Russia spends on defense, soup to nuts. Yeah. It's, it, it was so frustrating to me, and, um, and, and we've talked about this on this show, um, getting all sorts of perspectives, because I'm skeptical of, of any propaganda from anybody during acts, uh, t uh, times of, of war. But my point, and I think um, that all of the Republicans that voted against this package, their point was, you can say that Putin is an evil guy, and you can say that we should stand with the people of Ukraine, but you can still be skeptical of dropping $40 billion without any sort of oversight, most of which goes to the state, not to the people that we're claiming to help. Um, and yet, you know, your, your, your opposition has this, this knee-jerk, well, you're pro-Putin if you raise these questions. Right. When you allow decisions to be made based on emotion, that's the kind of logic that's going to be followed. And when you do that with a country like ours, that's gotten into the bad habit of just printing money when we need more of it, it starts to feel like a, an infinite resource. There's no scarcity there. Uh, that can compound other problems very, very quickly where war is involved. I feel like uh, I feel like our government may have a spending problem right now. I think so. I yeah. think so. I was, you know. Uh, no one wants to talk about it, but it's it's there, and it's time to take the keys yeah. away from Uncle Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Senator Lee. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.